the Sustainable Voice, bringing you big successes from small places worldwide. Welcome back to Sustainable Voice. This is Ashish, your host. Good to have you guys back. So I got a question for you guys. Have you actually ever had a moment where you read a really cool book? Like, this is such a cool book. This is going to make an amazing movie. And then you watch the movie and go, that sucked. That didn't cover it at all. That's kind of what happened in what I'm going to talk about today. So there's an area in the southeastern part of Kenya called Savo National Park. Now, I was born in Kenya. I was born in Nairobi. My father was born there. My mother was born in Sudan. So, you know, I'm Indian by descent. I live in the U.S., so I'm actually thoroughly confused. Uh, you ask me, what's my nationality? I'll go, mm. uh, I'm, I'm a bit of everything, I guess. But I digress. Let's talk about where we're talking, where we are today. It's the Kipalo Hills and the Imbulia Conservancy, specifically within the Kipalo Hills area, within Savo National Park in Kenya. So if you can imagine, you know, those end of those men in black movies where you've got the world or the locker that opens up to a smaller box, to a smaller box, to a smaller box, to a smaller box. Same thing here. You're in Kenya, you're in Savo National Park, you're in Kipalo Hills, you're in the Imbulia Conservancy. And that's where our story begins today. There's a really cool book that chronicles the journals of Colonel John Patterson. Now, you're probably asking who was Colonel John Patterson. Don't worry, I'll tell you. So Colonel Patterson was actually around in the 1800s, late 1800s, building a railroad from Kenya to Uganda. Uh, it was the original trade route. And, you know, there were, there were a lot of people involved. There were the Taida community, which is the local communities that are around the Kapalo Hills area. And, of course, Indians that were used to build the railroads. And what he was chronicling was actually these two man-eating lions that were coming and hunting the workers as we're building this railroad. So his journal, and, and, and I got to tell you, when you read this journal, it's chilling because he's every morning he's writing about happen, what happened the previous night. He, he, and he talks about how he can't understand while they're there. And you see him go through his moods. He's melancholy in some point. He is excited at one point. He is dis desperate at one point. Uh, you know, and he's, he, he's even at one point relegating himself to being next. And all through it, the railroad's being done. And, and, and just you start seeing this book. It's such a cool concept. And, and the, the fact that you're seeing his thoughts unfold. Now, now, when you read this, you actually have to take the book and you have to actually take it in pieces. I know a lot of you, if you read like I do, you like to just go through a book. Don't do it with this one. This is a slow release. You have to actually read it piece by piece because you want his journal to unfold for you the way it did back then. Well, of course, the book was really cool. So a movie was made. The movie sucked. The movie was called The Ghost in the Darkness. It starred Michael Douglas. And honestly, it should have been one of those Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. It just did, it, it didn't do it justice because it, it focused the story on Colonel Patterson. Whereas if you read the actual journal, uh, it's, that's not the story. It's not him. The story is actually why these lions keep coming in. He's not the story. And that's actually why Kipalo Hills and Embolia Conservancy is such an important topic on the Sustainable Voice. You know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about small successes and small victories and places in the world where things are just being done right and, and little victories 
where, where the needles moved in the right direction. Well, Umbulia Conservancy is actually that in the, in the Capalo Hills area. It focuses very heavily on this notion that, you know, that, that this little stretch of land is, is where this whole story took place. Within this conservancy, within the, these hills, within this national park, this whole story of Colonel Patterson. And again, he's not the story, but these two man-eating lions and what was happening with the railroad, this all took place in this stretch of land. And, and it's the middle of nowhere. You fly there, you actually go past Mount Kilimanjaro to get there. It's like going past nowhere to get to the middle of nowhere. And I got to tell you, it was awesome. I was there earlier this year. Man, it was unbelievable. There, are, It takes a lot to wow me. This place wowed me. And it was because of the fact that this place, the area, still preserves the story and still knows and remembers the story of Colonel Patterson. What's even better is that, you know, we talked about conservancies, and we've said this in, in other podcasts, but conservancies are basically parcels of land where the local communities own the land. There's some sort of revenue sharing agreement in some form. There's also a grazing agreement. There's a, there's a very symbiotic relationship. But what's really cool is one of the communities that's here is that same Taita community, the descendants of the, of, of the people that were building these railroads. So there's a story to be had. You start talking to some of the locals like I did, and you start actually hearing stories of what their grandfather told them or what story has been handed down by generation of what really happened. Now, look, I'm a history buff. I see this stuff and I go, all right, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. This is, this is the coolest thing. And I start hearing more about this book. I start hearing more about the, the, the journals. And I started getting into it from very young. And, and, I, and I, I took it upon myself to do this because I made the mistake of watching the movie thinking, hey, this movie is going to be really good. Long and behold, I went back to the book to say, no, I need to go back and dig at this a bit more. I want to go and actually explore this a bit more because I really think the story is so powerful. You know, while the actors were good, you had Val Kilmer playing Colonel Patterson with an accent that definitely was not British. You had Michael Douglas playing, I don't know who, I mean, what he was supposed to be, but he looked like something out of a biker bar. Uh, so that wasn't it. And not, not, anything, not that there's anything wrong with biker bars. There's definitely a time and a place for all that as well. But I'm pretty sure that involves Terminator and involves some sort of, of you know, action movie. Not this. The, the cool thing about the journal, though, is they, he, Colonel Patterson was brutally honest. At some point, he blamed himself, but he never stopped building the railroad. At some point, he wanted to, but he couldn't. Every night or every few nights, something was taken. He couldn't figure out. I mean, A, it's two male lions. Male lions, while they do hunt, it's rare. It's normally the lioness that hunts. But two male lions, two brothers that were just hunting. And of, of that, they weren't hunting animals. They were hunting people. Now, it was later proven that these two lions during their autopsies actually had, uh, when they checked the brain, there were psychological, neurological disorders um, that was causing this. And some sort of chemical imbalance, you know, obviously, but this was done years ago. And the lions themselves, actually, one of them is on display at the Chicago Field Museum of Natural History. I saw this lion when I was there last. It's bigger than life. I mean, it's bigger than what a lion normally looks like, but you, you, you look at the lion's eyes and it almost tells the story and you can't believe and say, okay, either the taxidermist did a really amazing job with this lion, or there's a story that these eyes are saying. And see, that's, that's the cool thing. 
is that you get to see this and then you've read this book. And now if, you know, as I was, I was in Kenya and I was in, in this conservancy. Now I'm living it. Now I'm actually talking to these people who are telling me stories handed down two, three generations. Oh, well, my grandfather or my great-great-grandfather or my great-grandfather, they were here. Uh, you know, this is what was happening. This is why they stopped. This is, this is you know, this is what, where it led to. Now, let me stop for a second and say that, look, this isn't the first time that lions have hunted in, in and around people. That does happen quite frequently. Uh, in fact, there's a really great TED Talk for those of you who, who want to watch one by a guy named Richard Turere. He was 13 when he gave this TED Talk, uh, and he's just one of my favorite ones. You know, and his, he talked about how lions come in, lionesses specifically, come in and they hunt the, the, the cattle and the livestock, a lot of these Maasai tribes. Uh, whether it's you know cattle, goat, whatever the case, they come and hunt them. And so his his TED talk is about finding ways to keep them away and 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 finding a balance between them and the and the lions versus just killing off the lions in self defense. So this is not so this journal isn't about oh well lions never hunt around people not at all. This journal is about what caused which is still a big mystery what caused these lions to actually go and hunt people in the first place. What caused two male lions to do it? This journal is about uh, the idea of a railroad that whether it was fully completed or not, fully used or not, is actually a separate issue. But the fact that the ambitious work was still being done. The idea of using slaves to build a railroad is a separate topic altogether. And that's something I'm willing to get into at any point because it was a lot of Indians like me that were slaves that that were actually building this railroad. But beyond that, though, it's the local community. And that's the story. That's the story, the local community. And that's what the movie missed. The the movie missed out on the fact that the local community people, all it showed was them just screaming in the corner and running away and saying they refused to work. And that's not actually what happened. And when you talk to these people in, in the, in the conservancy and, the, and you talk to them about their, about their, their ancestors, they will tell you that the elders in the family never stopped working. They still went. They feared for their life. And these lions would hunt at different times. A lot of times at night, obviously. But that's that's part of the story. That's actually the story. And, and part of what I wanted to talk to you guys about today was the fact that oftentimes when we talk about the book being better than the movie, we think it's because a story isn't told right. Is it that or is it that the wrong story is being told, which is what happened here? So... That leads me to the location, the actual location of the Imbulia Conservancy in Kipalo Hills in Savo National Park. This is in the southeastern part of Kenya. This is near Mount Kilimanjaro. It's one of the most scenic and you know the, 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 the desert area, one of the most scenic places of Kenya. Uh, it is where you get into that red sand. You get those large elephants with the big tusks. Even the other animals are here as well. But you get into the community. You get into what really is one of the areas in Kenya that has one of the lowest poaching rates, not just in Kenya, but in all of Africa. But you get into what a balance looks like between wildlife, tourism, and local people. And and more specifically, human-wildlife conflict as, as a more specific base. What a balance looks like between humans and wildlife and what the, how that works. Kind of ironic that a place that, you know, in the 1800s, was where lions were hunting people is now one of the best examples of where the human wildlife conflict is actually balanced, where it's actually kept at bay. 
you know, case in point, when I went there, I actually was staying at this really cool camp. And at night, uh, because you're built up in the rocks, you know, there's animals all around. So you hear stuff. But at night, a leopard walk right past my tent. Uh, and I was never in danger, but a walk right past. I think that was just, I mean, some people might have freaked out. I didn't. And if I did, you'd never know about it because uh, I won't tell. But the fact that, that it happened was really cool. But then you come down, you talk to the people, and there's just so much pride in what's in the area. It's kind of ironic, I think, right, that a balance is formed there. So to get here, it's not easy. You do have to take a flight to get there or take a train or drive for five hours to get here. So it is, it is definitely hard to get to. But once you're here, it literally is living history. And that's kind of part of you know, what sustainability is about in some form, right? Is preserving a way of life, preserving even a historic way of life, preserving a culture, preserving a heritage, or in this case, preserving an actual story and not having it being changed by Hollywood, but rather taking the story and seeing it through the eyes of the colonel who was building the railroad and then juxtaposing that by seeing it through the eyes of the descendants of the people who were actually building the railroad themselves. What was amazing was this. And when you have a, a dynamic like this, where a story is being told, normally you ask one side of the story or one person on one side, one person on the other side, you'll probably get some variation of the story, you know, and it may be similar, it may not be. Here it's different. They were telling the same story. Because the story wasn't about how they got to, you know, to, to the area to build the railroads. The story wasn't about that. The story was local community. The story was these two lines. And what was amazing was when you hear these descendants talking and recounting the story, it's actually not that far off from what Colonel Patterson wrote, which is really, really cool. So why is a place like this important? You know, when you talk about sustainability and our other podcasts we've talked about a robot teaching people that are you know that are underprivileged in peru and and how a robot is teaching uh, kids educate you know teaching kids school curriculum to keep them away from drug trafficking we we've talked about the Iescas reserve in peru where it, it's it's a it's a, a balance with local fishermen uh to protect the wildlife that migrate from the galapagos it's the same it's, you see a trend following so this place is important because of the fact that you actually have a balance between local people and wildlife. And that single balance comes through tourism. Did you guys know that in, in all of Africa, on average, it's roughly about 100 elephants a day that are poached. But in this area, they don't see very much poaching because the, community, the same community that owns the land, the same community whose elders built that railroad are not the same community who patrol it who actually make sure poachers are not infiltrating their land because of how much pride is there. There's rock art all over the place telling stories that go back centuries. Some of it actually even goes back to ancient cave art. So, you know, it, it, you, you start seeing ties between all the different communities and cultures in all the African continent whether it's the Zulus in South Africa, whether it's the Maasai in one place, whether it's the, 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 the Samburu tribes, whether, you know, whether it's the Himbas, you start seeing similarities and that similarities comes out of rock art. 
what I noticed walking through this conservancy was seeing this rock art on the wall. And I remember walking through some of the rock art in South Africa, different community. I saw some of the rock art in other parts of lower Africa, in Southern Africa, and it looked so similar. So you start seeing, wow, this is all tracing back to the same, the same communities, the same culture or the same origin. It's actually not that dissimilar from Latin America when you compare the Mayans and the Incans and the pre-Columbians and you start seeing that the similarities in how they worship volcanoes and how they, how they uh, use salt and how they actually, how they preserved their, their food and how they treated their young and, and, and how they, you know, how, how they, how they, 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 they built their cities and fortresses and citadels. It's the same thing here. How they communicated was so similar with this rock art in Bulia. It was so similar to what I've seen in South Africa. So similar, in fact, to what I even saw in Australia, in the Northern Territory. Think about that for a second. At the very top end near Darwin and, and the Bamaru Plains area with the right near Arnhem Land and Kakadu, seeing how everything was, was the rock art there, seeing the rock art around South Africa and other parts of Southern Africa. And seeing this rock art, it literally brought the whole world together. And for a split second, looking at this rock art, I thought, God, this world is tiny. It's not as big as we thought. I'm standing looking at rock art in the middle of nowhere, going past nowhere to get to the middle of nowhere. And this rock art looks eerily similar to what I have now seen on two other very different parts of the world. And one other place is at a complete different part of this same continent. Pretty cool. Think about that aspect. Think about the experience. It's a balance. And what do you get with that balance? Well, first of all, you, you get to come back and the story is told the right way. I remember when I came back, somebody had given me this movie as a gift years ago, that, that Ghost in the Darkness. I chucked it. I could not believe I came back and said, this movie, forget about being Hollywood. This movie is an actual lie. Not even close to the truth. I went back and read more of, John, of Colonel Patterson's journals. The story was coming together. And see, being here and, and traveling here, that's what my mission was, was to actually bring the story together, to be able to actually bring something together in a way that it actually connected the dots. I was just talking to somebody earlier before we, go, we went on air today, and I was talking about some other part of the world, and I was talking about preserving the actual indigenous communities and saying, you know, how do you preserve, how do you save this from getting lost? This particular country we're talking about, their indigenous ways of life are almost gone. And I was using the Mbulia Conservancy as an example, saying, it's, it's actually stronger than ever in this part of Kenya. But yet in the country that I was talking to her about, it was almost gone, disappeared. The people that were left, there were 10,000 of them, I think, left in the whole world. It might be even less. And a lot of them have assimilated with, with modern life, which means they're wearing jeans and shirts like all of us, which is fine, no problem. But they don't even practice their way of life anymore. Here in the Buldia Conservancy, it's still practiced the same way. Much like conservancies like it in other parts of Kenya and other, and other parts of Africa. But it, it really, it, it brings about this notion that 
you know, we always talk about the fact that, that, that when it comes to, to tourism in particular, if the community doesn't have a seat at the table, you kind of have a broken table from the beginning. I mean, there's proof of this, actually. If you look at places in Africa with the highest poaching rates, what you'll actually see more than anything else is that the community, while more difficult to deal with in many cases, while they do complicate things in many, many cases because their needs are very different, actually makes the experience better. It actually leads to more conservation. It actually lowers poaching rates drastically because now somebody is protecting their land, not because they have to, because they want to. It's huge. It's powerful. Now, let's switch gears and talk about slavery. Because it was involved here and, and it is a part of, of, of life in many places in, in the past. You know, it, it obviously never never was right, never should have been right. Um, and this is coming from somebody who's, you know, who comes from a race that was used as slaves. And what I'll tell you, though, and, and this is going to sound strange. So when you hear this, do me a favor and don't throw your device against the wall, um, even though even though it might cause you to. I want you to use this to actually create a, a thought, to, to, to try to form your own thought here. Imagine if this railroad was not built by the local community. Imagine it was not built by slaves. Imagine it was built by the army. And these same lions came hunting. Imagine it was built by the colonel and his friends and a bunch of machinery. And the lions came looking anyway. Would the story still be the same? Now, Grant you, the, that movie would never have been made, which maybe is a silver lining, but beyond that, would the story still be the same? Would the story still be powerful? Of course not. Sometimes these things have to happen because they're one chapter in a larger story. Much like this podcast. It's the, it's the third chapter in a larger story. Slavery was used to build these railroads. Those same slaves were hunted by these two man-eating lions. But that wasn't the story. The story was what I said before. It wasn't Colonel Patterson. The story was the work. The story was the community, the people, the lines. Think about what community-based tourism looks like. Think about what that feels like. But you've heard that phrase tossed around. Well, I want to I want to go visit the community. Cool. What does that mean? Does that mean you want to go visit a village? If that's the case, I'll show you a couple of amusement parks that can do it for you. Or does it mean Okay. What does community tourism mean? It's used a lot, but what does it actually mean? And I, and I ask this to somebody because I hear this phrase tossed around a lot. Oh, we believe in community-based tourism. And, and, and oftentimes we're so quick to say, cool, that sounds great. I started saying, so what does that mean? <laughs> you know what I've gotten back? Uh, uh, 
well, uh, uh, and, and then it just fades off. So Ambulia Conservancy is what community tourism done right looks like. You know how I know that? When I was actually at the camp that's in this conservancy, and by the way, it's the only camp in this conservancy, I actually watched the negotiation with, the, with this community. They all came in from the town. They showed up and they were their bright colors and they were coming with, you know, with their needs and, 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 and with the interest of partnership. And I watched for an hour painstakingly as the owner of the camp negotiated a new partnership agreement that went on for more years. I watched as he was beaten down and then lifted back up at one point telling one of them, I can't trust you. And then coming back and saying, okay, I do trust you coming, going one way and saying, you know, I don't know how this works. You, what are you asking for? And then turning around and saying, yes, we can live with this. You're a good man. This is exactly how it should work. You know what I saw? I saw give and take. I saw modern world negotiating with history. I saw indigenous community and their elders negotiating with a, with a Caucasian Kenyan expat who was in a wonderful guy. And it literally was that that dichotomy was something that, I mean, Spielberg couldn't even make up. I watched yesterday negotiating with tomorrow. And I watched it unfold in front of me for an hour. I sat there on my laptop, typing away, typing away, listening with one ear and listening intently as these guys talked about what they needed in their community, what was so important, what had happened, what the town needed. And you know what it got to me? That the same conversation likely happened when Colonel Patterson was here. When he was in that same area building that railroad, his, his people, or maybe even him, they probably sat at a table just like this. And they talked about what they need to keep working. They probably sat at a table just like this and talked about those two lions. They came together. And I watched that unfold when I was there in March. And it was just amazing to see. They accomplished what most world leaders sitting in a security council meeting at the United Nations can't achieve or what a, a summit of, of our global elders or global leaders, they couldn't achieve. They achieved an agreement. Not just the next step, but an actual agreement that was equal, that was mutually beneficial. And they didn't assimilate the way they do on that you see on TV where everybody's shaking hands and even though you don't agree, you put on a smile for the camera and, and you all pretend like everything's okay. No, I heard their grievances. And I heard them say, yes, this makes sense. Yes, this is absolutely right. Yes, this, this makes complete sense. I gotta tell you, it was so cool. It was so, so, so cool watching this. I got to see them interact. Could you just imagine? They were talking about the elephants and preservation and their culture and their town's needs and their children. They were talking about all of that. And they're talking about wildlife and the land grants and who owns the land and, and what happens afterwards. And, and, and they shook hands and they were so excited for the future and they were so excited about what was coming up and, and what the future held. Now take a step back 
and imagine Colonel Patterson in the same Ambulia Conservancy sitting with that same community, him or his people, having a conversation, talking about why the railroad, what's it needed for, talking about the wildlife, talking about the land grants, talking about who owns what, talking about their needs, talking about their children and the future. Talking about why this railroad was so important, how it connected two countries. I mean, you see similarities? I get chills talking about this, like goosebumps just thinking about this. And maybe it's just me, but I get goosebumps talking about this because I see all of these places, whether it's this conservancy or whether it's a robot in Peru or whether it's the, the, the private reserve, I see all these places as windows to a conversation that likely happened centuries ago. You want proof? I just explained to you about Colonel Patterson when he was here. Go back even further. Go back to when these communities were first being habituated here, when these communities were first arriving here. These are the original indigenous people here. So as they were forming communities, so as the foreigners arrived and they arrived here and they started having conversations, Think about that. However many centuries you want to go back, what must they have talked about? The land grants, their needs, the partnership, their children, and their future. Thanks so much for listening to The Sustainable Voice. I'm glad you joined us. Thanks for taking time out of your day. I hope this makes your drive, your work, your life more fun. And I'll see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to The Sustainable Voice. If you have a success story of your own, please reach out and share it with us. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.